Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patricio, and today we're talking about the readings for the fourth Sunday of Easter, May 3rd, 2020. The fourth Sunday of Easter, commonly called Good Shepherd Sunday, explores the idea of the Lord as guardian of our souls. In this episode, we look at the image of Jesus as the gate of the sheepfold and see how this image makes sense in first century Palestinian sheepherding culture. We also look at the Old Testament prophecies foretelling a new Davidic shepherd for the people of God, especially in the book of Ezekiel, and we end by unpacking the gorgeous images contained in the famous Psalm 23. Hello, faithful listeners and new listeners. Thanks for joining us once more. Today we are talking about the readings for the fourth Sunday of Easter, and the fourth Sunday of Easter is commonly called Good Shepherd Sunday because, as you're going to see In a few moments, uh, pretty much all of our readings center around the image of the good shepherd. So our gospel comes from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, uh, where Jesus actually makes the exclamation of himself as the good shepherd. Well, I should qualify that. He, he, the gospel actually cuts off at verse 10, right before he says, I am the good shepherd, but... The church still includes that in the gospel acclamation. So the gospel acclamation is John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. But anyways, John chapter 10 is the the good shepherd discourse, if you want to call it that. So let's just go ahead and start there. Again, like I said, pretty much all of our readings are going to take a look at the good shepherd. And so we're going to explore Uh, more of them in a way that we don't always do. Frequently, we just focus on the gospel, but we will begin with the gospel nonetheless. So again, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. One of my uh, favorite verses there, verse 10, verse ten the, the second part, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. A, be- a beautiful gospel for us. Uh, and like many of our gospels, to really get the depth and breadth and richness of it, we need to look back to the Old Testament. And I think when we talk about uh, the image of God as good shepherd, it's especially important for us to look back to the Old Testament because we are so used to the idea of Jesus as the good shepherd, as God as the good shepherd, that we don't necessarily uh, take the full weight of what our Lord is saying here in this gospel. If we put ourselves in the place of a first century Jew listening to Jesus preach this, 
we would remember all of these Old Testament proclamations and prophecies regarding the quote-unquote good shepherd. And we would see that Jesus, when he says, uh, I am the good shepherd, is, is taking upon himself the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. So I want to look first, I want us to look together first to Ezekiel chapter 34, which is a, a beautiful prophecy uh, about uh, bad shepherds and good shepherds. And this would have been a text that Jesus's first century audience would have thought of when they heard Jesus proclaim things like, I am the good shepherd. So uh, Ezekiel 34, we're going to read the entire chapter. It's not super long, but it's a big chunk of scripture, but it's beautiful. And it's really going to, uh, it's really going to, to lend to the richness of our gospel here. Ezekiel 34, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ho shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the crippled you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed them themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when some of his sheep have been scattered abroad, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel." By the fountains and in the inhabitant places of the country, I will feed them with good pasture, and upon the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on fat pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will be, bring back the strayed. I will bind up the cripple, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will watch over. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep. 
Ram and he goats, is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? And to drink of clear water that you must foul the rest with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have fouled with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust all the week with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will save my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing and I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in their land and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them prosperous plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. They shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, says the Lord. Oh, thanks for sticking with me. That was a long passage, but beautiful. And what we see here, we see kind of a a movement back and forth between uh, God judging the shepherds, and then he kind of moves to talking about judging between the sheep. And that can seem a little confusing here, but it makes total sense when we consider um, who Jesus is likely addressing here. And who he is likely addressing are uh, the the leaders of Israel. So uh, people like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, okay, who are in many ways shepherds over the people of Israel, but they are also the sheep. Why? Because they are human. So in God's eyes, they are both sheep and shepherd. And so God is going to judge them as shepherds who are, are not feeding the flock, are not healing the sick, are not providing for the sheep, right? But he's also going to He's also going to judge them uh, sheep to sheep, right? He's going to judge the fat sheep from the lean sheep. He says, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust it all the week with your horns. In a few minutes, we're going to look at, uh, I'm going to read you some passages from a beautiful book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, because as you can imagine, Psalm 23 is our psalm for this Sunday. But in this book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, uh, uh, the author, who, as you can imagine, himself is a shepherd, was a shepherd, spent time shepherding, uh, talks about how uh, there's social inequality frequently in a flock, and there will be certain 
uh, certain sheep that uh, quite literally boss the other ones around. So they push with side and shoulder and thrust it all the week with their horns till they have scattered them abroad, okay? And so Jesus appears to be bringing in this imagery from Ezekiel because the words he himself uses here in John 10, <clears throat> very similar language, right? He seems to be bringing up this idea of, of scattering those sheep who have fattened themselves and who have failed in their role as shepherds. And let's move back here uh, to our gospel and, and take a, a look here, dive a little bit deeper. Um, I, I want to spend some time talking about this, this one particular image that Jesus keeps using over and over because it can seem really weird. He keeps talking about the gate, the gate. And then at one point he identifies himself as the gate. He says, anyone who's, who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another is a thief and a robber. So if you do not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climb in by another way, you are a thief and a robber. Well, the fascinating thing is there are, you know, sheep hustlers that this is precisely what they do. They steal sheep. They steal flocks at night. And they're probably not entering by the gate. Why? We'll get to that in just a second. But in contrast, Jesus is the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd. And then he says, I am the gate. I am the gate. And this is this can be one of the more confusing uh, I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John. But if you know anything about first century shepherding, this makes a lot of sense, actually. Why? Because uh, in uh, first century Palestine, uh, it was very common for the sheepfold to not be what we'd imagine today, like uh, temporary gates or fences that can be set up in pasture or even uh, stables. Um, first century Palestine, Palestine in general, is full of caves, okay? This is why we see Jesus being born in a cave, Jesus growing up in a cave. Uh, a lot of what takes place in the gospel takes place in caves. This is very common. Caves are very common in Palestine. And so shepherds, the sheepfold was often a cave. And actually, if you ever have the chance to go to Bethlehem, You'll probably go out to what's called Shepherd's Field, which is the area where uh, the sheep were usually kept in Bethlehem and where tradition tells us that the angels appeared to the shepherds announcing our Lord's birth. But if you go there, you'll be taken around to all these various caves, which were used as uh, residences, as shelters for the shepherds, but also as shelters for the sheep. These are usually, uh, they have low roofs in them, but they're very, they're very large and you could easily fit a flock in them. Now, the, the fascinating thing is that because these gates were largely, or these, uh, these uh, caves were largely natural, they did not have gates, and the shepherds did not generally bother to build gates. What would they do? They would herd their sheep into the caves. And then they would sit or lie down, especially if they were keeping them overnight, in the opening of the door. And in so doing, 
They would prevent the sheep from leaving, and they would also put themselves between the sheep and any possible exterior dangers like animals. And so in this way, in first century uh, Palestinian uh, sheep herding practice, the shepherd himself would serve as the gate. And this is this beautiful image of the selflessness of the shepherd who uh, stands with very little protection or even sleeps with very little protection in, from, from, from the elements, but also very little protection uh, from, from wild beasts, right? Uh, he puts himself in between his sheep and the dangers, and so we get this beautiful image of a shepherd uh, laying down himself, uh, quite literally in some ways, for his sheep. And so Jesus is saying, I am the gate. I am the gate. And so um, those who attempt to shepherd the sheep without passing through the gate, who is Jesus himself, they are thieves and robbers. But the true shepherds are the ones who enter by the gate, who enter by Jesus. And so we get this idea that the true shepherd is the one who is identified with Christ. And we can see then how Jesus is contrasting the shepherding of, uh, of the Pharisees, of the Sadducees, of the priests, with the shepherds that he is going to raise up, which are going to be his apostles, right? And this is, John 10 is very much... Uh, uh, a, a gospel addressed to shepherds, addressed to our shepherds. So we should remember them um, in uh, in affectionate prayer this Good Shepherd Sunday that they would remain faithful. They would remain faithful in identifying themselves with Christ in entering the sheepfold by the gate, who is Jesus Himself. So that uh, when we see our shepherds, we see the authority of our Lord, both in uh, both in strength and in tenderness, right? Let's uh, let's look at our psalm because our psalm is arguably the most famous psalm in the entire uh, Psalter, in the entire scriptures. I already hinted at what it is and you can guess it. Our psalm is the beautiful Psalm 23. And I want to take you through Psalm 23 and just bring in some of the, the beautiful commentary that comes from the book that I already mentioned, um, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. That's the title of it. It sounds like a subtitle, but it's actually the title. It's a beautiful book, very easy to read. I would highly, highly recommend it. It's a gorgeous book. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Uh, we could spend uh, uh, quite a bit of our time together really picking apart this psalm verse by verse, and that's that's what this beautiful book does. But I'm just going to take a few moments to to bring out um, a couple of the, the beautiful 
kind of points here that uh, that David, who wrote this psalm, is giving us, and that uh, that uh, the author of A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 kind of pulls out. So, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Quick commentary on this idea. See, sometimes we think that um, when God provides for me, I shall not want. And I think there's a sense in which that's what the psalm is getting at here, and that's not incorrect. But at the same time, we have to understand that not wanting is a choice. Like being satisfied is a choice. Being dissatisfied is a choice. And so when we look at our lives and we recognize the Lord is my shepherd, the proper response to that is I have no wants. I shall not. I choose not to want. I choose not to be dissatisfied. This is the life that our Lord wants for me. He provides for all of my needs. And so I shall not want. Verse two, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The author of uh, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 talks about how actually rare it is to see sheep lying down. He actually makes the case from his own shepherding experience that for a sheep to lie down, they must be free from four things. He says they must be free from fear. They must be free from friction with others, other sheep. They must be free from pests like flies or parasites, and they must be free from hunger. So if a sheep senses at all, that there is a, a predator nearby, it will not lie down. It's only when it's completely assured that it is safe from predators that it will lie down. Only when a sheep is sure that it's not going to be bullied by another sheep will it lie down because the bully sheep tend to walk around uh, pushing, quite literally pushing the other sheep out of the way, butting them, headbutting them. And uh, a sheep does not want to be found lying down when the bully sheep comes by, right? The sheep must be free from pests, okay? Um, we'll talk about this more in a, in a few minutes, but um, when there are flies around or uh, a sheep is suffering from parasites, it to comfort itself, it moves around and it shakes around and it will go into the shrubbery sometimes just to try to get free from the flies. All right. We can, we can commiserate with this, right? So a sheep must be free from pests and it also must be free from hunger. A sheep is going to eat until it's full. And then when it's full, it's satisfied, then it will lie down. So the, the beautiful thing here is in this, these just handful of words, when David says in Psalm 23, he makes me lie down. He makes me lie down. There's so much richness to this. It implies that the Lord frees me from fear, that he frees me from friction, that he frees me from pests, that he frees me from hunger, that he's caring for all of my needs and the author of, of A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 uh, says that the answer to these uh, four freedoms, freedom from fear, freedom from friction with others, freedom from pests, and, and freedom from hunger, who provides those freedoms? The shepherd does. 
He talks about um, noticing over the years that nothing soothes his sheep by his that nothing soothes his sheep like his own presence in the pasture. When he comes out and just looks over his flock, and they see him, they settle down and they'll often lie down. Why? Because they know that the shepherd is watching for predators. Um. Friction, social friction among the sheep will often stop when the shepherd makes himself known, when he makes himself present. The bully sheep will stop bullying. And it's the shepherd himself who uh, who will free the sheep from pests and also from hunger. And uh, we get this last one here when uh, David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, Okay. One of the shepherd's chief jobs is to choose the pasture for the sheep. And some shepherds are poor shepherds and they don't go to the lengths to find good green pastures. But our Lord, who is the good shepherd, finds good green pastures for us. He watches over us, frees us from fear, and makes us lie down in these beautiful pastures. He also leads us beside still waters. Again, um, scholars and even modern day shepherds reading Psalm 23 say to themselves, it's clear that David was a shepherd because from these little details that even the layman who who appreciates Psalm 23, but not knowing shepherding practices um, doesn't quite appreciate uh, the exactitude that David puts into this Psalm. So he leads me beside not just waters, but beside still waters. Why is that important for a sheep? Well, sheep are covered in wool, right? And sheep can try to drink from running water, but it can be quite dangerous for a sheep to drink from um, running water, especially like a, 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 a fast-moving uh, stream or creek or definitely uh, dangerous for them to drink from a river. Why? Because what often happens when the sheep leans down to drink from the water is that some water will begin to splash up on its wool and wool gets, when it's wet, gets very heavy, very fast. And so what can easily happen quite quickly is if a sheep is led to running water, its wool can get wet so quickly that it can get so heavy that as it leans over to drink, it can get pulled into the water and then swept down the water and drown, okay? So an ideal shepherd finds still water for the sheep. And this is what uh, David here in Psalm 23 says that the Lord does for us. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Verse three, he restores my soul. This is one of my favorite sections of the book. A a shepherd looks at Psalm 23, where um, the author himself, a shepherd, talks about what, what this might refer to. He restores my soul. To, to begin to explain what the author thinks that David might be referring to here, he actually quotes another Psalm, Psalm 42, verse 11, which says, why are you downcast on my soul? Because he asks himself, what is the opposite of restoring? Well, what is God restoring when he says he restores my soul? And, and the author of A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 is thinking through 
a shepherding lens, knowing that David himself was a shepherd. And so he points to Psalm 42 verse 11, which uses this term downcast. And this term downcast uh, can mean kind of sullen or sad, right? But it's also an old English shepherding term, and it refers to something very specific in shepherding. So if a sheep is downcast or what's more often referred to as simply cast, it means, and this is amazing, it means that a, a cast sheep is a sheep that has uh, turned over on its back and actually gotten stuck, okay? There's something really comical about this image, but it's also uh, something very uh, sad about this image, okay? So a cast sheep, I'm going to repeat that because you might be like, what are you talking about? A cast sheep is a sheep that has turned over on its back and gotten stuck. So a sheep might be free from all these fears, right? It might lie down on slightly uneven uh, ground. And as it begins to relax, it might lose its center of gravity and roll over on its back. And once a sheep is on its back, it cannot get up on its own, no matter how hard it tries. If you actually go on YouTube and you search cast sheep, you'll get lots of videos, but they, they, they're like funny and not funny at the same time. You'll get lots of videos of shepherds coming upon their sheep that are cast and they're completely on their back and they're just flailing. It's like when a bug uh, gets stuck on its back and it cannot get up. This is what happens to sheep. Okay. And so the author of uh, Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 makes the case what, that what David is referring to at verse 3 here of Psalm 23 when he says, the Lord restores my soul, is that he, he restores me when I am cast. He restores me when I am cast. I want to read um, an excerpt here from you for you from, from this beautiful book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. He says, only those intimately acquainted with sheep and their habits understand the significance of a cast sheep or a cast down sheep. This is an old English shepherd's term for a sheep that has turned over on its back and cannot get up again by itself. A cast sheep is a very pathetic sight. Lying on its back, its feet in the air, it flays away frantically struggling to stand up without success. Sometimes it will bleat a little for help, but generally it lies there lashing about in frightened frustration. As it lies there struggling, gases begin to build up in the rumen. As these expand, they tend to retard and cut off blood circulation to extremities of the body, especially the legs. If the weather is very hot and sunny, a cast sheep can die in a few hours. If it is cool and and cloudy and rainy, it may survive in this position for several days. During my own years as a keeper of sheep, perhaps some of the most poignant memories are wrapped around the commingled anxiety of keeping account of my flock and repeatedly saving and restoring cast sheep. It is not easy to convey on paper the sense of this ever-present danger. Often I would go out early and merely cast my eye across the sky. If I saw the black-winged buzzards circling overhead in their long, slow spirals, anxiety would grip me, leaving everything else 
I would immediately go out into the rough, wild pastures and count the flock to make sure everyone was well and fit and able to be on its feet. This is part of the pageantry and drama depicted depicted for us in the magnificent story of the 99 sheep with one astray. There is the shepherd's deep concern, his agonizing search, his longing to find the missing one, and his delight in restoring it not only to its feet, but also to the flock as well as to himself. Again and again, I would spend hours searching for a single sheep that was missing. Then, more often than not, I would see it at a distance, down on its back, lying helpless. Once, I would start to run, hurrying as fast as I could for every minute was critical. Within me, there was a mingled sense of fear and joy. Fear that it might be too late. Joy that it was found at all. As soon as I reached the cast U, my first impulse was to pick it up. Tenderly, I would roll the sheep over on its side. This would relieve the pressure of gases in the rumen. If she had been down for long, I would have to lift her onto her feet, then straddling the sheep with my legs... I would hold her erect, rubbing her limbs to restore the circulation to her legs. This often took quite a while. When the sheep started to walk again, she often just stumbled, staggered, and collapsed in a heat once more. All the time I worked on the cast sheep, I would gently talk to it. When are you going to learn to stand on your own feet? I'm so glad I found you in time, you rascal. Little by little, the sheep would regain its equilibrium. It would start to walk steadily and surely. By and by, it would dash away to rejoin the others, set free from its fears and frustrations, given another chance to live a little longer. Ah, such a great, such a great image. Again, beautiful book. A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. I'd highly, highly recommend it. Let's keep, let's keep digging into Psalm 23 here. I want to jump down uh, just a little bit. I mean, it's only the next verse, verse 4, but it's a few lines down. Uh, Even though I walk through the dark valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When I read A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 and his commentary on this last part of verse 4, I realized that in my mind, I had always conflated the rod and the staff. Like I I had always assumed they were the same thing. But in reality, they're two different things, and it's still common practice today. Um, in uh, indigenous places or even in more modern places where shepherding takes place for the shepherd to have two tools, a rod and a staff. The staff is the tool we're most familiar with. It's that long, uh, that long pole, uh, that long stick that generally has a crook on the end, okay? And the crook is frequently used to kind of grab hold of the sheep to move them along. Um, the author of a shepherd looks at Psalm 23, talks about, um, um, staff, uh, staffs used being used to, uh, move, um, lambs so that, uh, you didn't have to use your hands because early on you didn't want your own scent to be on the scent of the lamb. Okay. Lest the mother would reject it. 
So the staff is the tool we're most familiar with, and it's a beautiful uh, image, right? The shepherd uh, standing with his staff and maybe using his staff on us, the sheep, to kind of grab us and reorient us. But the rod, the rod is a beautiful image too, and it's a beautiful image in kind of an unexpected sort of way. So what is a rod? A rod is basically a club, honestly. Uh, A a stick as well, but a, a hefty stick that's meant primarily to be used for defense. And so a rod was frequently kept to uh, kept close at hand to be used against predators, all right? Um, uh, and there are some, I guess, indigenous sh- shepherds in Africa who build their rods in such a way that they can throw them, and they can throw them at long distances and uh, with great exactitude so that they could potentially uh, hit like a wolf or something from a long distance away. The fascinating thing is that uh, a rod is is such a part of uh, keeping flocks that uh, I didn't realize this until I read this this book, um, that even to this day, rod is uh, a slang term for a handgun um, on many uh, farms and ranches, okay? Because as we've progressed and as our technology has progressed, the rod, the club, the big stick has been replaced by a gun, And uh, some people might be bothered by this image because, uh, I mean, understandably, guns bring with them a lot of a lot of baggage, right? But I think there's something here, and I think uh, I think we can understand what God is getting here in this getting at here in this inspired Psalm 23 from David about the image He wants uh, us to have of Him. See, the rod isn't primarily for the sheep. It's not primarily for the sheep. It's primarily, it's not primarily used on the sheep. It's primarily used for predators. And so what we have then is an image of of our Lord who is not afraid to keep with him a weapon of self-defense. And if David was living today writing this psalm, he may have said, even though I walk through the, val- the dark valley, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your pistol and your staff, they comfort me. And we think of the idea of our Lord as a shepherd who's keeping a, a sidearm. We begin to really understand how much God cares for us. And how much this image of him keeping this rod says, do not, do not mess with my sheep. Do not mess with my sheep. Jesus is willing to do violence to those evils who seek after us. And he does do violence to the evils that seek after us, to to Satan and his minions who want nothing more than to drag us into hell. Jesus will not stand for that. He will not stand for that. Even though I walk through the dark valley, I fear no evil, Lord, for you are with me. Both your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They comfort me.
Uh, last little point I want to I want to dive into again. We could just keep looking at the beauty of of Psalm twenty three, but uh, I want to look at um, I want to look at verse five, a few lines down. He, uh, David says, "You prepare a, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil; my cup overflows." And the author of a shepherd looks at Psalm twenty three says again. This is a section that is easy for laymen to overlook, but a shepherd would not overlook it when David says, you anoint my head with oil. Because as we read this, we begin to think, oh, David is beginning to use like anthropomorphic language. He's going to, he's beginning to put human language on, uh, on the imagery of the sheep. But a shepherd reading this says, no, in fact, sheep are anointed with oil on their heads, actually. Um, and this this comes in when uh, it's the shepherd's duty to keep the sheep free from the pests that we are talking about, right? So we said sheep will not lie down um, unless they are, uh, you know, free from all these fears um, and, and, uh, and occupations. And one of them is, uh, is flies or parasites. So, um, the author here of a shepherd looks at Psalm 23 talks about all the many things, the many, uh, insects that can bother sheep. He says there are werble flies, bot flies, heel flies, nose flies, deer flies, black flies, mosquitoes, gnats, on and on and on. He says, I'm, I'm quoting it again from the book. He says, sheep are especially troubled by the nose fly or nasal fly, as it is sometimes called. These little flies buzz about the sheep's head, attempting to deposit their eggs on the damp mucous membranes of the sheep's nose. This is kind of disgusting. If they're successful, the eggs will hatch in a few days to form small, slender, worm-like larvae. Okay, just got even more gross. Sorry. It gets better. They work their way... <laughs> They work their way up to the nasal passages into the sheep's head. They burrow into the flesh and they're set up in an intense irritation accompanied by severe inflammation. For relief from this agonizing annoyance, sheep will deliberately beat their heads against trees, rocks, posts, or brush. They will rub them in the soil and thrash around against woody growth. In extreme cases of intense infestation, a sheep may even kill itself in a frenzied endeavor to gain respite from the aggravation. Often advanced stages of infection from these flies will lead to blindness. Only the strictest attention to the behavior of the sheep by the shepherd can forestall the difficulties of fly time. At the very first sign of flies among the flock, he will apply an antidote to their heads. I always preferred to use a homemade remedy composed of linseed oil, sulfur, and tar, which was smeared over the sheep's nose and head as a protection against nose flies. What an incredible transformation this would make among the sheep. Once the oil had been applied to the sheep's head, there was an immediate change in behavior. Gone was the aggravation. Gone the frenzy, gone the irritability and the restlessness. Instead, the sheep would start to feed quietly again, then soon lie down in peaceful contentment. This, to me, is the exact picture of irritations in my own life. Sometimes we think our Lord doesn't care about our irritations. We need to just be able to overcome them, but he cares for everything. He cares for 
everything. He is the best shepherd we could ever imagine. Better than any human shepherd we could possibly lay eyes on or have the the great pleasure of coming under uh, his care, right? I just want to end by um, quoting another section of this beautiful book. This is from the beginning part of the book where the author talks about his experience of seeing other flocks that were neglected. He says, the tenant sheepman on the farm next to my first ranch was the most indifferent manager I had ever met. He was not concerned about the condition of his sheep. His land was neglected. He gave little or no time to his flock, letting them pretty well forage for themselves as best they could, both summer and winter. They fell prey to dogs, cougars, and rustlers. Every year, these poor creatures were forced to gnaw away at bare brown fields and impoverished pastures. Every winter, there was a shortage of nourishing hay and wholesome grain to feed the hungry ewes. Shelter to safeguard and protect the suffering sheep from storms and blizzards was scanty and inadequate. They had only polluted muddy water to drink. There had been a lack of salt and other trace minerals needed to offset their sickly pastures. In their thin, weak, and diseased condition, these poor sheep were a pathetic sight. In my mind's eye, I can still see them, standing at the fence, huddled sadly in little knots, staring wistfully through the wires at the rich pastures on the other side. To all their distress, the heartless, selfish owner seemed utterly callous and indifferent. He simply did not care. What if his sheep did want green grass, fresh water, shade, safety, or shelter from the, sh- the storms? What if they did want relief from wounds, bruises, disease, and parasites? He ignored their needs. He couldn't care less. Why should he? They were just sheep fit only for the slaughterhouse. I never looked at those poor sheep without an acute awareness that this was a precise picture of those wretched old taskmasters, sin and Satan, on their derelict ranch, scoffing at the plight of those within their power. Who is the who is the poor shepherd? Right, there are poor shepherds in the world. Men who are put over us to care for us, who fail to do this. But in reality, the contrast between the good shepherd and the thief and the robber is a contrast between Jesus and his self-giving love and Satan, who seeks after us, who attracts us with falsehoods, and then lets us waste away. I want to end with uh, these last few verses of our second reading, 1 Peter 2.20 and following. Uh, specifically this picks up at verse 24. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sin we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were going astray like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd 
and guardian of your souls. Lord, whenever we stray from you, come find us. Come find us. Please don't ever grow tired, Lord. You never grow tired of finding us and bringing us back to you. Lord, return us to your wonderful gaze and be evermore the guardian of our souls. 